forever. Dog. Hey y'all, my name is Alex Berg and welcome to the LGBTQ Nation podcast. LGBTQ Nation is the world's leader in LGBTQ news and commentary. And every week we focus on major topics affecting the queer community and speak with the nation's brightest thinkers, journalists, activists, politicians, and more. President Biden recently held a summit on climate change at the White House and pledged to decrease the United States' reliance on fossil fuels and support other countries in similar efforts. But after four years of an administration that denied climate science and now having to rely on Congress to greenlight funds for any efforts to address climate change, it's an uphill climb. Here's what we know. If we don't cut emissions to net zero by 2050 and limit warming to one and a half degrees Celsius, we are in serious, serious trouble. More trouble than we're already in now. We'll experience worse wildfires, droughts, and hurricanes, debilitating heat waves, and even more dangerous rising sea levels, displacing millions of people. On today's episode, we're going to talk about why climate change is an LGBTQ issue and how queer and trans folks are disproportionately affected. Even as someone who's incredibly plugged into the news and these issues, I sometimes feel like I could be doing more in my own life to lessen my own environmental impact and make climate and environmental justice a bigger priority in my own LGBTQ coverage. With that, I don't want to talk your ear off because we need to hear from this awesome panel. Joining me now is Erin Wise, the co-director of Seeding Sovereignty, Aletta Brady, founder of Our Climate Voices, and M. Christie, a consultant on climate justice at JFLAG, aka Equality Jamaica. Welcome, everyone. Hey, y'all. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Hey, yeah. So excited to be here. Recently, LGBTQ Nation reporter John Gallagher wrote a story where he talked about how the right wing and the religious right often blame LGBTQ people for climate disasters. For example, saying hurricanes are God's punishment for gay people. I mean, really outlandish and ridiculous stuff. So let's start off by just setting the record straight. What is the actual link between being LGBTQ and caring about the environment and climate change? Erin, can you kick us off? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think for me personally, I think the link is um, queer nature. I think that uh, the earth is a gradient place. It is a gender variant place. Um, and I think that, you know, for me, seeing the earth as I see myself is some way um, for me to connect to the land as an indigenous person. I also think that um, it's pretty funny when they say that, you know, queer folks cause natural disasters, considering that they often fall back on the church and the church has been one of the most globally destructive industries um, that our nations, you know, have ever encountered. I do think that, you know, the Western Christianization complex has definitely impacted how we're allowed to connect to the earth versus, you know, what in reality it is. Yeah, I don't mean to laugh as I was saying that in, in the beginning, but I think that the hypocrisy is just so ridiculous along with these outlandish views that sometimes I'm like, I can either laugh or cry about this and I'm just going to be like, this is truly so ridiculous. Um, what is the link for you between being LGBTQ and caring about the environment and climate change? Yeah, for me, um, I think nature strives on diversity. Like, if you just take a look around at nature's creations, like, it's so diverse. And trying to fit us all in this one box or two boxes, rather, as it relates to gender, goes against the very the very um, being of what being natural is about. And I think uh, that speaks a lot to me as it relates to my own relationship with the environment. But then I also understand that even though many of us might 
might have this might have a similar outlook. It's not very prominent for a lot of persons or readily identifiable in a lot of persons because being LGBTQ and being oppressed causes us to not be able to demonstrate these connections in the ways that we like to because of lack of access to even integrate with nature in some ways or lack of access to to even to even be able to think about it. Um, you know, being that we have to be thinking about our next our next move towards towards survival and and you know preserving our ourselves. Aletta, what are your thoughts about all this? Yeah, thank you for asking that question. I wasn't even really aware of what you were referencing with regards to the church. I try to stay away from that type of news because I find it not super useful for myself personally to dive into that trauma. But when I think about queerness and climate justice, I think about a couple of things. One, I think about how as a community, we're disproportionately impacted by climate crises, right? Like we're as a community on the front lines of climate crises, disproportionately likely to be houseless, to be without social safety nets, to be without familial um, institutional safety nets, may not feel safe around emergency first responders or government officials, um, may not be safe or free to travel, to cross borders if we need to, to move freely. And something that's really deeply important to me, I think about queer wisdom, queer resiliency, and what it means to be in community with people who for generations have been building our own informal mutual aid networks or formalizing those mutual aid networks, caring for each other in times of unexpected loss or in times of unexpected ostracization, really embodying what it means to show up for each other in a way that's like fluid, in a way that cares for one another, um, that's about community rather than the individual. So those are some of the things that I think about. Erin, did I did I see you a little nod over there? Oh no, I was just I I think I was just thinking a lot about like how um communities of the global majority, communities of color are not only impacted um, you know, at the intersections of being undervalued and underseen and the sacrifice zones for almost all climate catastrophe, but then, you know, adding the layer of the fact that folks are coming in and they're queer and they're trans, they're two-spirit, and they're not being necessarily recognized by society, let alone their own communities, and are coming in and kind of carrying the weight of not only like helping folks walk into the future, which has been the present, you know, of like who we are and who we've been, but then also thinking about like mutual aid in terms of like the elders who've been doing it for so long, who've been doing it for millennia, and teaching it to people who are still trying to deprive us of the right to protect the earth and ourselves because we're one and the same. Yeah, Aaron, I just want to second that and say that as queer folks, we are of nature, right? Um, we are a part of nature. And in response, I wanted to say in response to the um, comment that you made about the religious institutions, I think that for folks who are religious, right? Like a lot of queer folks aren't, a lot of queer folks are. And there's as any group of people for myself, when I think about spirituality, the best way for me to honor whatever spirituality or powers are out there is to honor how I'm created and how I am of the earth. And that's to honor my queerness and my transness. And have you thought about this at all? My own relationship with spirituality is very fickle. I've been in and out of that realm so often. I don't know personally if it if it comes to bear so much on how I view my own queerness and relationship with the earth. It's just that I believe as a species, as a human race, that we we all have similar rights to nature. And that's really just what my mission is, you know, to get 
everybody to be on that same page, recognizing that climate change really knows no borders. It doesn't know race. It doesn't know gender. It doesn't know sexuality. It's going to impact all of us. So we just need to get to that point where we recognize that by ostracizing LGBTQ plus persons, we are literally sentencing an entire group of people to their their death. Um, and that's not that's not that's not right. <laughs> you know, we just we just need to get past all of this and do what is necessary to support the fight for climate and nature. One of the things you said is that climate change knows no bounds. And one thing that we know certainly is that, uh, and even according to a paper published by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, that indigenous communities, women, transgender people, and gender nonconforming people face a more significant impact from climate change. Um, I'm wondering how each of you have seen this um, play out in your own communities. We kind of started to talk about some of the ways that we have seen the impact, but even more for our listeners who maybe they're broadening the scope of the way that they're thinking about this, or, you know, we're, we're talking about layers or really unpacking a lot of the layers here for them. Um, you know, maybe, maybe this is a newer aspect of the conversation. Um, how have y'all seen this in your own communities? I'm happy you referenced that, that, um, document from the USDA because it's central to some, to some of the work I'm doing right now. And, you know, just to point out that I've, in the last few weeks, I've read a lot of government documents, journal articles, um, reports that speak to, um, this risk and this increased vulnerabilities of LGBTQ plus persons and other minority groups. But yet still, even though some of this, this information is, dates back to as far as the 80s, like no real work has been done to, to quantify these risks in real numbers for the community. And particularly in Jamaica, um, we have not had a major disaster in quite a while, but I'm going to use um, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic as a backdrop to this conversation because I do consider it to be a disaster and it is quite linked to climate change. And when COVID hit Jamaica and we had to pretty much, yeah, just like every other country, you know, we had to restrict movements. We had to ask people to stay at home, business closed. A lot of LGBTQ um, persons were disenfranchised further because most of these persons are employed in, inform in the informal sectors. Some of them have short contracts or they work ad hoc. You know, so they get a, a project here and there that they, they can they can make some money to survive for the next week or so. Most of those businesses are projects stopped, and these persons were left without any form of safety net. So the government said, "All right, we're going to give each Jamaican." some money, well, each Jamaican in a particular income bracket, some money to help them weather this storm. Yet a lot of LGBTQ plus persons were outside of that loop because they either didn't have a TRN, which is a taxpayer registration number, sort of like a social security number in the US. Most persons never had that, or they never had an, any form of identification because of all of these stigma um, attached and the fear of going into these public spaces to get these um, documents sorted. So they were left out of that social security net that as as small as it might be could have helped um could have held something for a little while. So we see that we see that playing out a lot with COVID. So you know J Flag and Transwave had to step up and give out care packages to to these communities and it's still happening now over a year later into the pandemic because there has been no form of recourse for these mem for the members of the community. Yeah, I think I'll just piggyback off of that too and say that, you know, I definitely think that 
um, COVID-19, the way it showed up in the United States anyway, is like a continuation of the colonial genocidal project against the peoples of this nation, um, against communities of color here. Um, and, you know, not to bring it back to the church, but that's how it showed up in our communities was, the, you know, there were pastors that were coming to like save us and they were sick and they thought they could pray COVID away. And they infected hundreds of people who then went home and infected thousands of people. I mean, last year, we look at the numbers, one in every 475 Native Americans that are enrolled, that are recognized, that are federally, you know, communicated with, you know, they died last year. One in every 475. That was the highest death rate in the United States, the smallest percentage of the communities, um, you know, that are self-sufficient here. And they were all indigenous. And I just felt um, very much like it was not only impacting our communities, but it was in impacting our, you know, our queer relatives, our trans relatives, because, you know, the church told a lot of people that, that, again, it was like AIDS, you know, it was misinformation that was being spread. And it was like, obviously, they're the ones that are doing it, right? Because they, they bring everything else we don't understand, even though we previously understood it, you know, pre-colonial contact, we understood gender gradients and all of these different sexual identities and the ways you showed up for your community. But now we don't understand. And the church is telling us that they made us sick. And so not only, you know, these, these family members who were watching everybody generationally die, were then being forced out of their homes, forced into unsheltered situations. And so, you know, um, similar to what M, you know's organization did, my organization stepped up and we've been providing community care packages for folks primarily queer and trans relatives um, and looking at regranting funds to transgender resource centers here in New Mexico and also to places like Zuni Mountain Sanctuary, which have created whole basically like fields of sanctuary space for queer and trans relatives to go to that have been displaced by COVID-19 because their families are convinced that they're the reasons people have gotten sick. Um, and looking at those relatives and not only providing physical and, you know, like food or housing or supply support, but then also looking at how do we heal their spirits from that, right? Because you're not only in crisis along with everybody else in the world, but you're now being experiencing, um, you know, some extreme ostracization and then also being told by your community that you can no longer come back because, you know, were it not for you and your kind, things like this wouldn't happen to home communities. It's still the misinformation and trying to figure out how we keep a whole group of folks from committing suicide or from self-harm or self-destruction um, has kind of been another avenue as well. And we've been leaning heavily on all of the healers in our network um, even to work with, you know, folks within our collective, because we're mostly queer, trans, non-binary, and we're sitting there having these conversations with our community members who are experiencing this feeling that we've all felt ourselves. And it's like, how do we hold them and hold each other and hold the people who have actually caused the harm accountable? Because we can't heal going forward without that help as well. Yeah, that is such a big uh, question and such uh, such a uh, heavy thing to hold also just to also be thinking if you are healing providing healing and support for folks then like who's also there for you as well um to to even navigate all of that um aletta how have you seen this issue play out in your own communities this is such a big question alex um and i think that it's 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 deep and it's nuanced it's complex right because part of the reason 
that I'm here today is because of a certain level of like access and privilege that I have. And the fact that I'm someone that people is like somewhat invisible that folks can reach out to. And I think I always hold that um, when I enter spaces like this and talk about queerness, because I've had, you know, I've had my own experiences with, with losing family, the majority of my family losing social safety net in that way. But I also um, have a white middle-class background. My parents stood by me. I was enrolled in school at the time. So I had institutional support. Um, and so I think that there's just something as a queer person and trans person, non-binary person with a level, level with levels of access that, um, you know, in some ways this is my experience in some ways it's not right. Um, but I will say that I think that there are very concrete ways that queer and trans folks experience climate crises. I've, I have many friends and community members who've experienced houselessness, right. Who are threatened in the face of natural disaster, folks who have needed to cross borders, um, international state borders, and have had fear because they've transitioned and they're worried about potentially moving from a land that is um, gender affirming to a land that's not. And what does that mean? And sometimes when you've gone through certain transitions, it's hard to pass again. And that's really scary. And then I also think just speaking on like the healing power of nature, I think about myself as like a young trans kid when I didn't really have language for that, but I felt really alone and I would go sit by the Mississippi river by my house and like feel like myself. Like I felt held in a way that I never experienced as a kid elsewhere. I was like, just a kid. I got to be a kid in my own body and my own skin and my own gender. And I think that the fact that queer and trans folks ostracization leads to lack of financial stability, lack of social stability so often that also means the cutting off from natural spaces, right? And those healing spaces where we can really be ourselves and connect with the nature in us. And I guess the other thing I would say is there is also a correlation between social stigma and um, oppression and developing disability, chronic illness, mental illness, right? And that's so often construed as like our fault, which I really don't, I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, but like, because of the ways that we're um, oppressed, we do develop higher rates of mental illness. And like myself going through, I've had chronic COVID now for 12 months. So I consider myself now a person with um, chronic disability and just thinking about also the way that that plays out with climate crises. And are we going to have access to the medications that we need to the healing, the things that we use for healing, whether it's herbs or natural remedies or, you know, whatever it is, if there's a crisis and things are, are upended, are we going to have access to folks with physical disabilities being able to move from point A to point B? And so there's just lots of layers to this. Em and Erin, I saw you both nod a little bit. So feel free to jump in if you have anything that you wanted to say or add there. Yeah, um, nothing really to add. I was just, um, I was just affirming, um, the the whole idea of access and you know really acknowledging that we're here on this curve um with a certain amount of privilege um and recognizing also that the things we say you know aren't necessarily the exact experiences of all members of the community but at the same time i really do believe that being in this place of privilege um and also being a member of member of the community um wh- whatever our our place is or how we view that we have a duty to bring the voice of the community to the conversation so i was just you know i was really happy to to hear the things that Al- alita um is saying um 
especially, you know, that connection to nature and how because of this oppression that we face, we are, we are, we have been robbed of the, that um, ability to connect with the thing that makes us so whole, you know, <laughs> the thing that makes us who we are or could potentially make us realize who we are. We, we are robbed of that and that's very important to our knowledge. So thanks for bringing that up. I think I was more nodding just because I was um, thinking about like, I grew up at the Mississippi River too. Like I grew up in Minneapolis. So I think also like different bodies of water had impacts on me and, you know, and my queer and transness as well. But I was also thinking about how beautiful it is that, you know, we've had those revelations thanks to nature and how, um, you know, things like pipelines threaten to destroy, you know, our communities, um, our water supplies, our, you know, our, our living earth and how, um, you know, when places like man camps are created to help house the folks that are creating, um, you know, the pipelines, the construction workers, um, how they invite violence against women, they invite violence against our queer and trans kin and how that violence um, against our people, our relatives is then in turn, um, it begets violence against the land. And we have this continuous cycle, um, you know, where we have people that are coming through, like, um, you know, Obama came in 2014 to Standing Rock and said, you know, like, I love y'all. You're like, my kids want to protect you forever. Then in 2016 approved the Dakota Access Pipeline. 2017 came along and, you know, they had stopped the pipeline right before the end of the Obama administration, the Army Corps of Engineers, and then Trump opened it up. And then the whole clusterfuck that was Trump for four years, you know, and now we're coming back into what's supposed to be like the cleanup period, you know, the the light at the end of the tunnel or whatever shit that they're trying to get us to believe. And there's Biden. And I know people say it's only been the first 100 days, but actually to me, it's been since he was making these promises as vice president during the Obama administration. And I think that um, watching the continual promises that are being made to communities that are readily sacrificed um, and heavily impacted. Um, and just like Aletta was saying, no one ever talks about what's going to happen, happen to disabled folks in times of extreme climate crisis. No one ever talks about what's going to happen to the poor neighborhoods, the black and brown neighborhoods, the black and brown kids, the people in the prisons who are primarily black and brown. No one ever talks about these folks or what's going to happen to the folks that are in you know, institutions that help them thrive, um, you know, where, where are those folks going to go? And I always think, you know, they have been waiting so long for all of us to die. Um, they have been waiting so long for all of these things for us to just kind of drop off and no longer be part of their new world order. And I think it's really remarkable anytime Western science comes out and says, you know, we have this new thing for climate change. And if you only do this by this time, you'll be okay. Because, you know, Western ways of knowing always deal in disaster and extinction and catastrophe. Um, and so it's kind of hard for me to talk or look at, you know, what this administration or any is um, doing as, you know, something serious because they're always waiting for the end moment, the, the doom, the, you know, the final ending. Whereas I feel like um, communities of color see things in a round room and indigenous knowledge as it's informed me has shown um, that, you know, the gender gradients, um, the variance and the, um, I guess, intersections within our beings and our, our ways of knowing um, are going to inform 
our ability to survive beyond these disasters that have kind of been predetermined for us. And I think that, you know, tearing down these institutions of oppression are actually going to help us um, find a way to survive whatever is, you know, surely coming for us and also help get everybody there and not just the people that can afford to survive or the people that feel that they're deserving of it. I'm really tired of cis, particularly white men, thinking that they're going to be the only people on the other side of any crisis, when in reality, it's all of us reaching down to pull them out of their own shit. I wanted to revisit the, this idea of having these extreme kind of benchmarks language. Um, I, of course, use them to describe where we are uh, in the intro. And it's interesting because I feel like in so many ways, that is uh, how I, I know I personally have been socialized to think about this issue in, in terms of the extremes or gosh, now you have to pay attention because it is getting so bad or it already is really bad or by X and X amount of time or degrees or year or X, Y, Z, kind of this, this sense of urgency and finality to all of it. How do you think that we could be better framing this and thinking about this just beyond those kind of hard numbers? I mean, I don't know. For me, it's like, do I put a time limit on how long I plan to be alive? Like, I really genuinely think about that. Or do I look at the people that I'm in community with and be like, you know what, I give you until 50. And like, that should be good enough for you. Because as long as I make it to 62, I'm good. You know, like, I just feel like folks look at the earth and it's this living entity that supplies everything we need to survive without question. Like human beings are the most pitiful asset on this planet. Like we can't do anything without help, um, without direction, even from the animals, the animals in the earth literally have to be in crisis for us to be like, what are we doing? Maybe it's wrong. Um, I also think that, you know, it's one of those things where, um, I don't know. I feel like communities need to be in more conversation. I think that we've been so siloed, especially in this last year where we talk to people even less. I think that the introduction of social media has been highly detrimental to our communities because if you don't want to see someone or you disagree with them or whatever, you can block them, cut them out. And I think that the way we need to be working with young folks who are inheriting this earth that has been poorly stewarded in the last, you know, 120 years or so. I mean, you really think about it, what we've done to the earth is such a small amount of time. Plastic showed up in the 60s and now we have plastic in our bodies. Like, you know, we have plastic in our foods, in the rain. Um, you know, I think about all these different things and I think we need to be telling kids like, hey, first of all, even if you don't like it, you got to talk to each other. You got to get, you know, used to dealing with things that make you feel uncomfortable. You also have to acknowledge the fact that maybe the way you've been taught things and everybody else has been taught things is wrong. It's okay. I don't think that people have ever heard that this like global acceptance of like dominance and conquest and growth and capitalism or, you know, growth in, in quotes um, is, you know, ever been helpful to anyone. And I think that young people, especially now with social media, think that like if they go online, they can buy the thing like, you know, Aletta was saying that green capitalism and greenwashing things has really been detrimental, but also just the way we speak to each other. 
Um, you know, and people a lot of times don't like to hear what I have to say, or they'd be like, oh, you're bringing the air and fire today. And I'm like, no, I'm sorry that no one's ever told you that what you've learned is completely fucked and that you need to let go of that. Like if you can learn that being transphobic is bad and you stop that, you can also learn that like half the shit you've accepted about your life previous to now um, is also not unreal and it's hard, but we move through it and we have community to lead on and we have therapists and ways to heal. You know, I also think that people feel um, like they are entitled to nature. And that's also hard for me, too, because like there are lands and territories that have been safeguarded. 80 percent of the biodiversity in the world is safeguarded by indigenous peoples who every single year are murdered in droves for protecting the land that everyone else benefits from. I think it's really hard. But I mean, we're in a place we're in the age of the Anthropocene, right? Like the age of extinction. What other hard conversations can we be having at this point that aren't harder than the ones we're already having? We're at a point where like nothing is worse than this. We just got to get used to hearing things that we don't like because we're not going to have an earth to discuss and make better if we don't try now. Erin, I loved what you said about like, it's okay to be wrong. It's okay to unlearn. In fact, who wants to be someone who never learns something new or who never grows or who stays the same? I think that's really important. Alex, what your question prompted for me is just, I think that this idea of thinking of climate crises only in extremes is a tool um, by the fossil fuel industry to have us not notice or not care unless things get so bad that our entire life is upended. And so for me, part of what the work that we do at Our Climate Voices is talking about the small things, right? Like talking about like, I woke up this morning and we haven't had snow and it's been six weeks of winter. And that makes me really sad because the snow reminds me of Christmas morning with my grandma. And, you know, she passed a couple years ago and I miss feeling her in that way. Right. And like, nobody is arguing that that's the worst thing to ever happen. But I think normalizing conversation around just normalizing conversation about the smaller impacts. And that doesn't mean centering those things, but it just means, you know, I think about other movements for social justice that, um, you know, I look to the Me Too movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, queer liberation movement. They're all movements where there is this sense of, if this, if this touches you, if this impacts you, you have every right to speak on it. You have every right to speak on it. And with, for whatever reason, with climate change, and I think it's intentional, there is this sense of like fear of talking on it, fear of speaking on the way that it touches our lives in, in maybe like smaller ways. And I think that that can exist at the same time as we should be turning to the leadership of those on the front lines of the crisis, turning to like listening to paying the folks who, who know the most. But I think that really normalizing, understanding for ourselves how climate change is touching our lives, our communities, people we care about, identities that we hold, places that we love. That's all part of demystifying this idea that it's of the future or, or like Aaron was speaking to, like we don't care until we reach a certain quota. This is happening now. It's happening to our communities now everywhere. So yeah, I think we need to start talking about it more. Yeah, that's a very good point, um, both of you. And um, Aleta touched on this issue of um, this, the, the psychoanalytics that, that underpins much of these approaches and conversations around um, climate change. 
So we present it as, as this massive challenge that humans are unable to perceive. So most persons actually don't think it's happening. Most persons don't believe it can happen or will ever happen. Um, and so the conversation ends up remaining in this within within this particular group of people who have the language to um, appreciate it and engage with it. So I really do support that idea of, you know, breaking it down, bringing it closer um, to your own personal experiences. Um, for Earth Week that went in April, um, another organization I'm a part of, Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council, we, we hosted a climate ribbon ritual. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. And, you know, well, to be fair, like all the events that we hosted that week were events that allowed persons to come and express themselves. So we had an open mic night where persons came and they wrote and presented poetry about climate change and how they feel about it. And it was so touching to, to kind of hear what people are coming with in terms of the sort of emotional impact that climate change is having. And I think if we can tap into that a little bit more or a lot more, um, rather, we would be able to, you know, to breach some of these barriers that we're having, the, the sorts of conversations we're able to have, especially with people who are not within the climate space. And I think those are the people that we need to be talking to right now because we need to, to you know, to rally the troops, so to speak. And it's not going to be from within the climate space because we're already converted. And it's definitely not going to be from within industry because they don't care. They, they, they want the profit. Right. So we need to be we need to be tapping into that emotional sphere and getting more persons involved in the movement. Well, just to uh, wrap things up, um, a lot of what I'm hearing is that we need to bridge different communities, communicate and have conversations about this with each other, um, have an openness to learn, relearn, be wrong. Um, what else uh, do you think our listeners can do to get more involved and to participate uh, in all of this? Gosh, I think, you know, COVID has made things so weird um, in terms of showing up physically. Um, but I think that there is a lot of learning that folks can be doing right now still, you know, in their, their safe spaces. And also, like, as things are, you know, sort of opening up online. For me personally, I feel like it is hard for a lot of people to connect to the land in the United States in particular, because this is a landmass that is occupied primarily of immigrants um, or folks who are brought here through different diaspora or, you know, situation, um, you know, situations of enslavement. And I think that, you know, it's my auntie LaDonna, who, you know, founded the Sacred Stone Camp. Um, she used to say that you know, the roots grow out of her feet into the earth and that it was always a comfort to her wherever she walked, knowing that she was on her land, knowing that she could feel some of her ancestors. For people who can't necessarily ground in that way, I would just invite, like, get to know your territories, get to know the land that you occupy as a guest or as a visitor or a settler. And I mean, learn, learn the names of the land, learn the names of the trees, if you can find ways to learn the languages, because I think that, you know, if you're showing up in community spaces where, for example, in Minnesota, they're fighting line three right now, you know, that is that they've been fighting that since 2015 when and, you know, prior to that, it was called the Sandpiper. I mean, it's just they changed the name of the projects. The people that are showing up are learning Anishinaabe, they're learning Dakota, they're learning how to like call the rivers by their names. And I think that's so integral to um, supporting the communities who have safeguarded so much of the land and the waters for so long. Um, I think that's it for me personally, but thank you. Yeah, my, my thing would be to just show up, 
to these conversations, uh, particularly for LGBTQ plus persons, nobody's going to create space at the table for us. If they were to do that, it would have happened years ago. So we have to, we have to like pretty much just show up and insert ourselves in these conversations and be intentional about it. Um, alignment with community groups is always good. And particularly, I think for those organizations who are working within the human rights advocacy space on around LGBTQ plus issues, need to be broadening the scope of the conversations that they're having as well to include climate justice, because this is a real challenge that's going to add to the already, <laughs> you know, stockpile of issues that we have to work through to get um, our issues on the books. I I really agree with the importance of grounding in place and grounding in community. And I think sometimes when we want to take action or we feel moved to take action, sometimes the best thing we can do is actually slow down. Urgency, especially when we're new to something, I think is rooted in a lot of individualism and white supremacy culture. But if you are um, interested in getting involved, the first thing, and this is new for you, the first thing I would say is take a breath, slow down, listen to research, learn from folks who have been doing this for a long time, elders, BIPOC communities, LGBTQ leaders, disabled leaders, indigenous folks, folks in rural communities. There's a lot of people who have been doing this. And then I think the second thing I would say is just connect, try to find ways to connect to your community and get plugged in, whether it's digital or not. I think that um, really rooting ourselves, whether, whether Aaron said, whether you are indigenous to this land or a settler or a guest or a visitor, really understanding where you are. And also then thirdly, understanding the ways that climate change connects to your life and your communities, because I think really showing up in solidarity with other folks who are fighting this, as opposed to from a position of saviorism, I think connecting to our own, our own histories and our own ancestries and our own lived experience and communities, how is climate change touching with folks to help connect to their climate stories, to help connect to this issue on a personal level. There's lots of other resources out there as well. Um, Center for Story-Based Strategy. I know Aaron and Em's work as well. So I would just say, look to what is already there. Be ready to to sit and listen for a while and really um, take in what is out there. Well, we can leave it there. Huge thank you to all of you for such a thoughtful conversation. I know I have taken so much of your time. Where can folks follow you and find out more about your work? Erin, starting with you. Yeah, of course. Folks can learn more about us at seedingsovereignty.org. They can follow us online. We're most at, active on Instagram um, at Seeding Sovereignty. Um, I post most of the things that are there along with our comms team. So folks can find me or they can um, email at connect.seedingsovereignty.org. You can find Equality JA at um, Equality JA on Twitter and Instagram and also Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council at our footprint, OUR footprint, JA underscore on Twitter. Yeah, and um, folks can connect with our climate voices at ourclimatevoices.org. Um, and we're also most active on Instagram at Our Climate Voices. Thank you all. Each week after our discussion, I like to leave you with some good news. The Biden administration has reversed a policy from Trump that allowed healthcare providers to discriminate against LGBTQ people on the basis of their religious beliefs. The move means that healthcare providers and organizations that receive federal funding can discriminate on the basis of a person's gender identity or sexual orientation and reverses a policy that was particularly egregious for trans people. 
It reinstates and broadens an Obama-era guidance protecting trans people from discrimination in healthcare. In President Biden's address to a joint session of Congress, he pledged support for the community. For all transgender Americans watching at home, especially young people, you're so brave. I want you to know your president has your back. The healthcare policy comes a little over a month after the confirmation of Dr. Rachel Levine to Assistant Secretary of Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. She's the first out transgender person to be appointed and approved to a federal position by the Senate. We love to see it. Please make sure to support the LGBTQ Nation podcast. Subscribe, rate, and review our show right now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please. And check out LGBTQ Nation every day at www.lgbtqnation.com. LGBTQ Nation has been a joint production between Forever Dog and Q Digital. LGBTQ Nation is hosted by Alex Berg, produced by Andrew McGuire, engineered by Katrina Henning, music by Gabe Lopez, executive produced by Joe Cilio, Scott Katz, John Halbach, Bill Browning, and Melissa DeMonts. Forever! <laughs>